Hi, I'm David Schwartz, and we're here to talk about uh, my uh, music career and scoring and uh, stories from my past, which I may or may not divulge. <laughs> David, thank you so much for inviting me to your studio. It's such a pleasure to, to sit down and do this. Well, thank you for coming and doing this. This is a great treat. Absolutely. So to start off, I always like to kind of, uh, kind of the origin story of the composer I'm interviewing. So kind of looking back at... Um, your childhood and growing up, what, what what do you remember music kind of playing a, a you know, what role did music play in your life early on and or when did you discover it and it kind of became part of your life? It was always there, but I don't think I was that, you know, prodigy kid or playing an instrument from a really early age. I, I think at some point, um, I think I wanted to be a cowboy. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a reasonable career thing for Absolutely. a kid from Long Island. <laughs> and I think my mother interpreted that, that I wanted to play the guitar. And, and she got me uh, oh. you know, a Brazilian classical guitar, and I took lessons like everybody else. And, and then you know, maybe around 13 or 14, I started to be in a bunch of bands. And in one of them, it was you know, three guitarists and sometimes a drummer. And you know, we realized something had to give in that orchestration lineup. And every time we, we, we got a... A Vox bass, which I wish I had now. We were embarrassed about the Vox bass then. Actually, let me correct that. It was a Tysco bass, and we wanted a Vox bass. Uh -huh. And one of our dads, my dad was an artist, but another one of the guitarists, his dad was an artist, and he made us a Vox logo to stick on our dad. <laughs> <laughs> so right, we have neither of those bass. But every time I would play the Tysco slash Vox bass, the other two guitarists would say, Yeah, man, you're great at bass. And, you know, which I even realized then was. They wanted to be lead guitarists, and they thought, you know, I would cover the bass role. But secretly, I did love it, and uh, I asked my father if he would loan me money to get a bass. Mm -hmm. And I was had jobs all the time, but I wanted to get it fast. And he said, "No, you know, you already have a guitar. We're not going to do that." And my father was a very eccentric artist and a painter and a commercial artist. And he calls me up like a few days later, and he says, "I'm at Lincoln Center. I'm looking at the most beautiful thing in the world. I want to buy it for you." I said, what is it, Dad? And he says, it's a sitar. And I'm going to find Ravi Shankar, and I'm going to give you lessons. And I said, hey, Dad, can you just lend me the money for that bass? <laughs> so I, I feel like I, I caught him in a sting operation, and uh, he realized that the sitar, I probably should have done that. I mean, how yeah. cool. Uh, he probably would have found Ravi Shankar. And uh, I, so I, I've never played the sitar. Oh. And, and I got a bass. And uh, what happened from there? So. Uh, you know, I got more and more into music and was playing in every kind of band, and, and you know, I just didn't have a particular kind of music I liked, so I played in every D kind of band you can imagine. And, and I was never the writer because I was never the singer, mm. and I would find people who were better writers and we would have bands. And, and then uh, I went to the Berkeley School of Music, but in my senior year of high school, I decided I wanted to be a photographer. Mm. So. Uh, I made a sudden switch and went to the School of Visual Arts, which I think may be just as important a school for me because it's a very visual place. Both yeah. my parents were visual artists. My sister's a visual artist. So I think that if I had any edge when I got into scoring much later um, was that I understood visual artists and I knew what they were talking about and I could sort of translate that into what my musical thoughts were. And I, I think that's a useful skill that you know some musicians just can't relate that way. Yeah. Absolutely. So I thought that was great. And uh, so I went to the School of Visual Arts, um, not necessarily relevant, or maybe my parents divorced during that year. And I just got like, I, I was alone by myself with a camera or a darkroom all the time. And I wanted to go back to something more social. And I really missed music a great deal. So I'd already gotten into, into Berkeley. So I asked if I could come in the next year. And they mm -hmm. said yes. And I didn't realize I'd still be back in a dark room by myself. <laughs> yeah, it's the, the end plan of everything. Yeah. But no, I was very happy to be back at music. And I still do photography, and I love that. And, uh, but I wasn't in the scoring program at Berkeley. I accidentally got put in the upright-based department, which I played a little bit, mm -hmm. like in my last year of high school. Are we just too much info? No. Or? Oh, okay, no, good. Give it, give All it right, to good. me, man. I, you tell me when that happens. <laughs> so, uh, you know... Uh, Berkeley made a, a typographical error and put me in the upright department. But I liked my teacher so much. He was the head of the department. He said, well, you know, you can play. I can see you haven't played that long, but you should stay here because we don't really know what's happening in the electric-based department yet. So it was the early days of them teaching that. So I did. And that, to me, meant I shouldn't go to any classes. I should just practice. <laughs> <laughs> so things like composition, uh, counterpoint harmony, piano classes, 
I, I went sometimes, but yeah. <laughs> uh, I didn't say that on camera. Uh, but but I, I played in all kinds of great ensembles. Mm -hmm. uh, I was in Gary Burton's percussion ensemble, being the bassist with nine percussionists and, and a drummer. And it was really tough. And suddenly everything was in odd meters, which I'd never done before. And, and you know, Gary, well, he's just, Gary Burton is just, amazing you know he'd yeah. play it and then he'd sit down on the piano and play and then he'd sit down on the drums and play it and luckily he couldn't play the bass <laughs> but that was a fantastic experience and uh and then i think i was i, I left berkeley after a couple of years and started to tour with bands and uh out of woodstock new york out of new york new york uh so still close to my home base of new york and um and then i toured out here with uh john hall and a couple of times and other bands and I just got it in my head that I should be here. And New York right. was just not particularly happening when I got back. And, and I had met the woman who was going to become my wife. She was my girlfriend at the time. It was really within our first year of relationship. But somehow I convinced her that we should just go check it out. It's yeah. sort of a, a youthful thing. <laughs> and we didn't plan on moving, but it, it kind of stuck. Yeah. So that got me here where more bands, more kinds of music. Oh, I did play in orchestras in, at Berkeley too. I played okay. in the Boston Civic Symphony, which is a lot of New England conservatories. And actually, my stand partner, the unbelievable Ed Barker, became the next year the principal bassist of the Boston Symphony, and I believe he still is. And I was going, this guy's better than me. <laughs> I shouldn't say us, but me. I know, because I, I, you know, I can bow, but, yeah. but this guy seemed a lot better. And I got him for a stand partner, and he was very nice and, and would protect me. He said, Dave's a jazz guy, but, you know, yeah. he can play. So I, I played in that orchestra. That was you know, my first orchestra. So that really counts, you know, when I came to scoring that I at least understood what it sounded like from the bass section, you know. Yeah. I didn't know what those other people were doing, <laughs> but but no, it was a fantastic experience and I always wanted to do it more. Um, and then, well, we'll skip forward because of all the different bands and, and some great ones out here and still a little bit of touring. Yeah. And then I, I started to produce from a home studio, not this one, but a humble garage studio. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I don't remember what happened next. So, oh, my friend DJ Webster, who would be a recent but good friend at the time, had had really success with some of the early MTV videos. Oh, they, they were really popular, and he wanted to do his own movie. And he said, I'm doing this movie. It's called Skeeter's Wings. It's going to be great. Do you know anybody who might want to score it? I couldn't think of anybody. <laughs> this is where it's good to have a wife, because my wife said, you should do it. I've always thought you could do that. And I said, so I, you know, went to DJ and it's like a week later now and I said hey I'd like to take a crack at that what do you think and he says well you know I'm now with William Morris and they have some people and they have big credits so but if you write something I'll listen to it so that's what happened I wrote a theme for Skeeter's Wings and um, he just fell in love with it that's awesome. and so uh, but neither of us really had gone through this process of yeah. you know being the composer or being the director directing the composer uh, and he had an editor who had been through the process who would just yell at us like mercilessly. <laughs> he said, oh, you're wrong. Don't you know you have to hit the cut? Stuff like that, you know. Yeah. And uh, the, the budget then, the deal that he made with me was that we would split the cost. Not he would buy, but he, we would split the cost of a roll-in sampler, like an early one. So this is taking us back a while. Yeah. And that movie never got shown. DJ got a job directing a horror movie that you know, already had a composer and all that stuff. And he, he, I think he had just run out of budget. And the movie was really cool. And he, I think it was ambitious, if I can say that, that he could do it on the budget that he had. Yeah. Uh, but maybe 25 people saw that movie. And one of them was Cheryl Block, who I had lunch with while we were doing the movie. And DJ introduced me. And, and after that movie, I realized, oh, this is what you should be doing. You want to be a composer. Uh, so I sent out reels to like, I got a list from the Hollywood Reporter or something like, you know, <laughs> I, I really was clueless. So, uh, and I sent them out to everybody and of course there were zero responses. Yeah, yeah. Um, and a year and a half later where I hadn't given up on it, you know, but I was doing other things. I was producing people, I was recording people, I was playing bass for people. Uh, the same show block called me up and said, hey, you know, we're doing this TV show I don't know if you're interested in that kind of stuff. It's called North to the Future. Don't know if it's really going to go at all. Uh, but we've tried everybody in town, and we don't like any of the music, so do you want to give it a shot? Now, 
that's always a mixed. You know? <laughs> I don't think people mean it that way. And we tried like, everybody. Sure, is a great friend. You know, everybody else failed at it. Now it's your turn. You know, <laughs> but you know, I said sure. You know, because it was an opportunity to do what I wanted to do. That's and at, at that point, uh, like 15 minutes later, um, a William Morris or one of the big agencies or CAA agent, like PA, came by my place and gave me. Uh, I don't know what it was. Maybe it was video. No, I don't think there was video yet, but it was something. Oh, it was a script. Oh. So uh, I realized, oh, these people have real work, and <laughs> you better do good at this. Uh, so I went into my studio. I had a backyard garage, and uh, and somehow I wrote the Northern Exposure theme. And I say somehow because it just came from that place of Where you no knowledge, yeah, I and, I, and I can't get back to that now. I try every day. <laughs> and I thought it was cool, but I thought, this is too weird. And it was all samples at that mm -hmm. point. And I said, um, I should write something that sounds like a TV theme. And I wrote another thing. And I, I don't have an example of that. I've looked for it for a few times now, and I can't find, and this is what I play them, the wrong thing, which yeah. the best of my recollection was sort of like a game show theme, you know? And it was just wrong, but it's well, not. In your head at the time, what was a TV theme that you wanted to capture? I don't think I had a clue. Yeah. I don't. <laughs> I mean, I'd seen TV, that was about it. And yeah. I was just trying to be original and, and and come from a different place. But I just really, you know, I didn't have much information on the job. Yeah. Um, I did actually have a conversation with Josh Brand, who created the show and is a total genius, musical and otherwise. And, you know, in, in a little bit of time, I had sort of researched it. And we talked about Inuit and Eskimo music, which is vocal games and drums i couldn't really find any other examples other than that and we didn't feel that was it and he said well just go the opposite mm. it's sort of like we were looking at brian eno's oblique strategies before like go the opposite could be one of those yeah. i don't know if it is but you know do the other thing or right. whatever right and uh so i started to think of um you know southern type music and uh i was very interested in cajun music and latin music mm. so i think that's where that theme came from and uh you know, a few days later, um, Cheryl Block came in, and uh, I wonder if I had Luis Conte on, on, on congas and percussion yet. Maybe. Maybe I, I you know, because that's the kind of thing I would usually do. I'd just take a chance, get the players. And, um, and she, heard, she heard, oh, I played her the wrong thing. That's what I have to say there. So, and she's like, I could just tell, like, you know, like three notes in, somebody else listens to it. And I yeah. go like, oh, you made a big mistake. She said, that's not good. <laughs> she's pretty blunt to this day and uh and she said oh, you got anything else which i was so glad because i said yeah and you know as that thing of keeping something in your back pocket and yeah. she said oh that's really good let me play that to josh but i should tell you that he has a david burns song this little town and he's pretty in love with it so you know it might be already decided and then you know it took a few days and um she called me back and said oh yeah we're going to use your theme and i was super excited and oh. like you know really excited on the phone and she said so we'll see you tomorrow and we'll you know do the rest of it and i'm now i'm super scared i'm also <laughs> pretending to be super excited but yeah i don't know how to do a tv show i mean yeah. that was like certainly i'd done this one little movie you know a year and a half before that and i'd never really even been much of a writer so to have mm -hmm. to write a lot of music every week i knew that um and uh and at that point like josh got involved in the theme we tried versions with mariachi horns versions with different rhythmic approaches, all different kinds of versions. We basically came back to the version. And you know, I started looking for someone who could play the chromatic harmonica. And I found a guy, and the session just it did, didn't seem right to me, but I played it to them. And they wanted to go back to the sample, which was you know early harmonica sample, not good. <laughs> and then I remembered that I had played on, actually, Larry was here today, my friend Larry McNally. Uh, had a record and that he had had a harmonica player who sounded like Stevie Wonder because that's the sound more than like Toots who I is one of my heroes uh, on a chromatic harmonica Stevie Wonder was the sound that I was hearing in my you know and yeah, I wasn't yeah. going to be able to get Stevie so <laughs> I'd heard this guy play and he was an R&B singer mm -hmm. and he was a keyboard player and, and I called him up and he came over and we're talking as you know I'd like to start a session with a little bit of talking and I said where are you from he says well Alaska and he didn't know anything about the show so I figured this is a sign, I got the right guy, and he played it great, and it really came together at that moment. And I think the other big moment for coming together was, was Luis Conte, uh, who, who um, he's just 
you know, one of the great percussionists of all time. And he, he, he didn't know me from anything. And I, you know, I had like a closet in my garage I put him in. <laughs> and, uh, well, this is a side story, but years, or maybe a year or two later, we had to do the record version, which was nominated for a Grammy and, yeah. and actually went up the charts. It was pretty That's surprising amazing. and everything. And so, you know, Josh, the, now we're doing the show, maybe after the first season, he said, hey, we're going to do a record. You know, can you give us the long version of your theme? I said, it's a minute and seven seconds, which now would be incredibly that's a long, long. Yeah. <laughs> I said but that's as far as it goes he says well create a long version and I think there's two or three things in my life that I could feel like I did this <laughs> you know like it's good yeah. you know like I, anything else I'd be happy to go back in and change a few notes <laughs> rewrite but but I didn't feel that so it was really tough to expand it and Luis came back mm -hmm. and we just couldn't get the Kunga sound we couldn't I said first of all I'd moved to the studio in that time period so maybe it was two or three years into it and uh, you know he wasn't recording in the closet anymore, which has yeah. a certain cool sound. You got that sound. And right. I said, "Well, where are those yellow kungas?" He said, "Oh man, someone had lent them to me. I, I didn't know you were from crafts. <laughs> so, I shouldn't say that. He didn't know me, is what he said. And uh, he said, "I just brought those kungas. And uh, well, can we get them again? No. So uh, we had to sample the first three notes. So it go, or it goes bop 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 is is the intro is the intro there. And so." After that, the band comes in, and we could match the kunga sound close. But it was really necessary to do that. Yeah. And my own bass part, which I played on a fretless bass, which is somewhere around here, <laughs> I can show you later, um, which I inordinately sweated over. I think Gabriel Mann in his interview says, like, <laughs> I'm not happy until the bass sound is, you know, to my <laughs> satisfaction. So it's sort of that way. Yeah. And, you know, here I was sort of this semi-frustrated session player, and I wanted to get the great bass sound on that, which I was happy with when it was done. And so for the beginning and ending chorus of, of the record version, I used, you know, and, and it was tape. It was 24-track tape, so it wasn't easy to, you know, it wasn't like sampling it is now. Yeah, yeah. We, had, we had to fly it in from one to another. And then we did a whole arrangement with Abe Most playing clarinet, and uh, Luis had a percussion solo, and Andy Norell. Do you know who Andy Norell is? No. He is still the great uh, jazz um, steel pans player. Oh, wow, wow. He plays Trinidadian steel pans, but he's, he's a great jazz soloist, and he had played on, on Northern on some cues, so we brought him for that. So there was a clarinet solo, a percussion solo, and the steel jump solo. So wow. that made the record. So I skipped ahead a little bit there. but um, So during the period where I was trying to be a composer and didn't have any traction in that, I'd done this small movie, I was producing a young man named Chris Livingston, who's still a friend, and he was a songwriter. And uh, his dad would often come and visit the sessions. And, and his dad said to me, uh, you know, I've done some things in show business. Can I be of any help? It's always hard for me to ask for help. But yeah. now I wanted to be a composer. And Alan Livingston, Chris's dad, had been the president of Capitol Records. Uh, he had been president of something, of Fox. Mm -hmm. And so he sort of knew everybody. And he was making this offer. I said, yeah, you know, I've been trying to be a composer, if you know anybody. He says, I know the top agent in town, Stan Melander. I'll just send him your tape, and you know, it'll happen. <laughs> and it was a very nice works, offer, right? and, and Alan couldn't have been nicer to me. And uh, so the tape went out to um, to uh, Stan Melander, who was then a top agent, and. Uh, I would try to politely check in every two weeks or something like that. And, yeah. You know, I did this about four times. And every week, and finally, his um, receptionist said to me, um, "You know, honey, he's never going to get to it. I can tell you're nice, and he's nice, but he's just never going to get. You know, he's got yeah. a pile of tapes. You should see him here." And I just loved that someone like called me Hollywood honey. You know, yeah. who didn't know me over the <laughs> phone. You know, anyone who says, "You know, I don't know if people are still using doll and honey that way," but it was, you know, I felt like. I'd made it into Hollywood when someone had called me Dollar or Honey. Anyway, so, so that was that. And then, you know, now we can go to the part where Northern Exposure was, first of all, I was flying by the seat of my pants. I did not know how to be a composer. Yeah. Um, so the first episode, we spotted it. I didn't know what spotting was. And I would say, I don't know. <laughs> I, I couldn't really bluff my way through it. Yeah. But uh, I think Joe Block and Josh Brand and took chances on a lot of people, directors, PAs became producers. I mean, it was pretty extraordinary, and they wanted to try it different ways, and they were all really talented, and all the people who came out of that show just had, you know, to me, tremendous careers. And uh, so, 
So that first show we spotted, and we, we, there were only maybe seven spots. And wow. now I thought, well, now I can do my big film score, which was a terrible mistake. And I tried to do these grandiose things and be Ennio Morricone or, you yeah. know, whoever. And uh, so they came to my studio, my little garage, a few days later, like three producers. And it was sort of like, no, that's wrong. That's really wrong. <laughs> It sucks kind of thing. And we really got to the end of that spotting session, which was just painful for me. I don't know how they felt about it. And uh, there were like nine cues total. And, you know, we already had the theme in there, and that yeah. was working great. And, oh, I should say that the theme, um, the moose came after me. I did not write it to the moose. Oh, okay. Morty the moose was hired to, to work to my theme. <laughs> and uh, so, so after that spotting, at the end of that spotting session, there was one more cue. I said, like, you know, look, I can tell this is not going well. Why don't you give me another day or two? I'll rewrite it. I'll make it simpler, whatever it is. And they said, no, let's hear the last cue. We're here. Mm -hmm. And the last cue they loved. So now I had two things. <laughs> and we actually, I think, used twice in the body of the show the theme, which never got used again in that way ever. It was just wow. everything about Northern was really unusual. Every show was different music. We wouldn't start with the template. We didn't start with themes. I think the third or fourth show, Josh suggested, what if we had West African music here? <laughs> I mean, to work with people like that, yeah, uh, yeah. there was a show, he said, can it be like the New York R&B band stuff? And on the seventh show, I think it was the seventh or eighth, uh, I think we only did seven that first season. He came to me and said, have you seen this new show? And I said, no, I'm coming in to see it now, this episode. He says, well, it's a Western that takes place 100 years back. And can you get like a really giant orchestra, like 165 people? And again, you know, I said, I'm not sure about this, but I think that's a lot. <laughs> he said, well, just get a lot. I said, so um, I hired 65 people, and I had Sandy to Crescent, and I had the Sony scoring stage. And, uh, you know, people who I've known since who played in that orchestra, it was really incredible and yeah. an amount of pressure I can't believe I withstood. <laughs> and uh, my friend Phil Giffen came in to conduct, and he helped me with the orchestration and really said, well, this is really good, but let's expand this here because mm. you've got great themes here. This is going to work. Let's just do it. And that session went, you know, it was scary to the last second, but it went really well. And the awesome. orchestra themes came out great. And that was the first time I used an orchestra. Wow. And it was thrilling. And, you know, it was just great in every way. So, and the show, I don't know if it was the end of it, or in, after, between the first and second seasons, we weren't even sure we were going to get picked up. Mm -hmm. It just blew up. It was crazy. Everybody found the show, and it was this phenomenon. And critics loved it. And it was, I think we won the Emmy that year for Best Show. And, uh, you know, everyone got a lot of attention for it. And it was this totally unusual show that yeah, nobody yeah. expected to happen. And I, I think we were sort of like, I don't think the networks were really paying attention to us, you know, at the time until it hit. But then we had already established a method that worked. And, you know, I, Josh was that kind of producer where he just did what he felt was right and made it work. And I can't say the seven years got easier. I mean, they were certainly smoother and I had less fear, but I always felt like I was learning every week, which was great. You know, I, great, yeah. I had this, you know, he would say, well, what if we tried French cafe music in these scenes? And, and, you know, he had all kinds of music. And then there were producers who were experts in classical music. Can we do a cue like that's like Alban Berg? And I say, really? You know, and, no, that show kept and, on your toes. And, and, <laughs> and they had, you know, uh, Andy Schneider, who was one of the executive producers and later on was running the show with, um, Oh, who did The Sopranos, David? Um, oh. Okay, David. now you can try to remember her name. Not David Simon. No. no. Uh, <laughs> anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, he had, his job out of college was he would take, he, he spoke Russian fluently, and he took all the Russian violinists on tour. So he knew this repertoire of, you know, 20th century classical music and all these. And so he would suggest stuff like that. And, yeah, uh, wow. And Martin Bruce Lee, who went on to Sopranos too, uh, started with the show, uh, and he only liked one record from Stevie Nicks, and, and I guess Lindsey Buckingham, too, so the two of them, and he would suggest that, like, very <laughs> and then he became, like, one of the big musical tastes in the show. He found incredible music, so it was interesting to watch us all grow together that wow. way, you know. That's so, uh, so, yeah, it, it was a phenomenon, and it lasted seven years, and I did very little during that time besides doing that. I felt like I'm still, this is taking all my time, literally. Yeah. And I had two young kids, and uh, that was it. But, I mean, looking back at it, does it, does it feel like a blur? I mean, you just recounted it step by step, but does it feel 
Like you can chronicle that time in your life, or does it? It feel was like very it? important. I, I can remember the feelings of it yeah. and how great it was, and and uh, and everybody had a strong musical opinion, but like anybody's opinion was there, and you know people would passionately discuss things yeah. about music, and and but everybody on that show, and I had later experience that weren't like this. It was just about making a better show. And yeah. how can we make a better show? It wasn't how can my ego get involved in this? How can we be political? It wasn't that way. So that was really interesting, and that's where I came from. When I did other shows, which we don't have to talk about later on, I saw it could be a very you know political infighting and all kinds of stuff like that. But this yeah. was not that. I've been really lucky to work with great <laughs> creative people. And I think you sort of get known for the first thing that you have some success with. Yeah. And the first thing I did was really intelligent TV that's both funny and dramatic. And I've gotten to do a bunch of those. And then there were years where that really wasn't being programmed and, and it was hard to find things that worked for me, you know. And it's, I mean, when now we're living in this kind of, uh, I mean, everyone says the golden age of television. Yeah. I feel like it's been the golden age for a while. But, uh, you know, I always talk about how the middle class of filmmaking kind of disappeared. But it's mm -hmm. now on, on TV. It's where you find... Those, these auteur storytellers, you find these, I mean, the best content, I think, is on television now. Oh, there's I mean, incredible stuff happening now. So, and there's lots of great shows yeah. that are both funny and dramatic and, and meet that criteria. There aren't many. This is something I thought was really unique about Northern Exposure. It was this benign universe, and it was a place you wanted to be. And you could watch it at 10 in the morning or at 1, 1 a.m., mm -hmm. and it didn't shake you up and make you <laughs> so anxious that you couldn't sleep, which a lot of the shows that I really love, they're built on being disturbing. And maybe yeah. it's a more disturbing culture we live in now. But, you know, there was talk of Northern coming back, and I was excited for that because I had said for years this show was ahead of its time. Mm -hmm. And it was just a lovely place to visit all the time. And it wasn't soft or schmaltzy at all. It was just yeah. brilliant and funny. And so, you know, I don't think we are coming back now from what I last okay. heard, but I would have loved it. You and I know. do feel that The Good Place meets that requirement. The Good Place is very unique in that sense, yeah. That it's a happy place, even though it's the bad place some of the times. I think I could say that now. Yeah, after but, <laughs> but it is. It's a place you want to go and you want to visit. Yeah. And it's a half-hour format. It's different. But, you know, every show is different. But uh, I'm glad that I get to work on one like that, too. Yeah. Another uh, show you worked on was the uh, John Larroquette show. Oh, okay. And, uh, is You've that done your homework. <laughs> <laughs> is that where you first met uh, Mitchell Hurwitz? It certainly is. So, um, and Mitchell, for everyone who doesn't know, he's the creator of uh, Arrested Development and, uh, and, um, and has been, played a big part in your career. So, but, so talk so about... So big. Yeah, and, and I'm, first of all, I love Mitch and he's the funniest person and it's always great to be with him. And we didn't know each other before then. And... Uh, well, I'll tell you how we became friends after the series. Because he was writing on that series, right? Or was he create, did he create that or no? Uh, Larroquette, he started out at Whit Thomas as a PA on the Golden Girls. Yes. Yeah. Which is just the most, it seems like the time, it just doesn't seem possible. And, the, and he sort of moved through the ranks there and they really liked him. And in the final year of Larroquette, they gave him the, sh the showrunning job. So he was writing okay. and the showrunner, oh, wow, wow. as I understand it. And well, I have told this story before. And my story is very weird on how I got together with Mitch. Mm. But then um, a few years ago, we did an interview together, Mitch and I. And his story was equally weird and shared no details <laughs> with mine. There were like two alternate realities. And I can't remember his because I would gladly tell it. It might be the right one, but I, I like mine, so I'll tell you yeah, mine. Yeah, let's tell you yours. <laughs> uh, I hadn't been working much after Northern Exposure. It was really hard, and it was like, yeah, we'll have a show with a moose, we'll call you, kind of thing, you know. <laughs> I mean, that's sort of what happens, you know. And I'd done a couple of things, but um, I got a call for Lara Cat, and, and my then agent said, oh, you shouldn't do it, because you'll get be a half-hour guy. And, mm -hmm. and I was back and forth on it myself. And then, um, well, now I'm trying to remember the, the order of events. Well, I think Mitch called me, like himself, and said, hey, I was back in the cleaning closet of Whit Thomas where we keep the cleaning supplies and I saw a cassette. It had your name on it. I really liked what's on it. Could you come in? I'm doing this show, the John Larroquette show. So the cleaning closet story is what, what I remember. And I do remember that a few months before that, a music supervisor I know was at Whit Thomas 
And he called me up and asked me, they had a new show, and they wanted a seven-second theme that sounded exactly like Bruce Springsteen. And the person who got closest to Springsteen in seven seconds was going to win the job. <laughs> I don't say no. I don't think I do it to this day. But then I said, you know what? That just doesn't sound like something. <laughs> that sounds so great. But I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to send you a reel of stuff. And if you like it, you know, let's talk, you know, that kind of thing. And I think that's how that reel got to Wit Thomas and ended up mm. next to, you know, the floor cleaner and Mr. Clean or whatever was in the cleaning closet. <laughs> It sounds like a sitcom line yeah, I like found a, in the cleaning closet. The, but. The, like, so you're telling young composers to put their demos in cleaning closets? Yeah, if you can LA. get them in there, it's, it's harder to get them in there these days with the internet. But the, uh, So I, I, I drove down to the, the Gower lot, and Mitch is on there in his office, and he's by himself, and there's sort of no people to get by or whatever. And, uh, and we have this just great conversation. We're laughing the whole time, but he's acting like I'm already doing the show, which I think... You know, if you've done some meetings as a composer, sometimes that's the case, yeah. and you're dead wrong. You're not doing this show, yeah, or they're yeah. wrong, or you know, they we're the biggest fan. We can't wait till you do this, and you're not doing it, which I, I get. You know, yeah. it's just part of the process, and and then sometimes you, you have no idea that you're going to get it, and you get it. Right. But I guess I was doing it, and at first it was very much. Um, I wish I could remember his version of the story. Anyway, so <laughs> we started doing the show, and it was really. A, a multicam of its time. In fact, yeah, I remember the yeah. first note I got from Mitch, can we get more one-note cues? And I'm going, one-note cues? He wants really short cues. What is it? And the main instrument was a clarinet. So uh, I, I put a, a sheet of music on Bob Shepard, who is still uh, my favorite clarinet player and does a lot of woodwinds for me. Um, I put a sheet. It just said, play one note, any note. And he just comes in, what the hell is this? You know, I said, we got to find a way to make one note cues expressive. You know, let's, yeah. let's do some tricks with the clarinet. And that worked for a while. But then Mitch became more and more creative, at least what he was asking for in music. Mm. And as the show was coming to its final episode, I think it was a 22-episode season, like the way it used to be. Yeah, yeah. He'd be calling me up and say, hey, can we write a song for this? And I said, you mean for tomorrow's show that I'm handing you? Yeah, and he'd like give me some idea, and we'd write it together, and, and we were trying all kinds of crazy things, and you know, he was having me sing stuff, and it was really getting to be fun and way more creative. And we finished that, and that was the end of the show. We knew it was going to be the last season. Mm -hmm. And then um, I belonged to a gym locally. I know this doesn't sound like it's part of the story, but... <laughs> I went there and I see Mitch like on a weight machine, you know, doing that kind of whatever that kind of lift is. Uh, uh, and I said, hey, are you okay? He says, yeah, I'm just going to stay here until I get fit. So he, he'll, you know, like many of us during the season, you know, it's like hibernation. Well, it's not because we're working really hard, but you just tend to eat a lot, not exercise a lot. Yeah. So he was determined. And I, I believed him that he was going to stay there if it took weeks to get fit. And that's sort of the way he is about everything. He concentrates so hard. Mm whether it's the show, whether it's just being a friend, and he's very unique. And uh, I, I, I'm aware that we work legendary hours and sometimes very late at night, but you know, I'm with him and with Jim Valley, his best writing buddy, and it's hysterically funny. We're laughing all the time, so it's where I want to be all the time. Yeah, if they're you around. Surround uh, yourself with people that make are you better. Kind, and, yeah. funny, and brilliant, and yeah. it, it's great. And uh, and then I did a few shows with Mitch. One of which was oh, we did the the Ellen show. We did a couple of Ellen shows. Yeah. Uh, one which Ellen got, got picked up, and Ellen didn't want to do. It was this cool variety show where she was sort of like came out and talked to the audience. I think in character, and then um, but it was like a show. But the audience part was filmed live. It was sort of ahead of its time. I can't remember the name of that. And then I did this Ellen sitcom, I think, for two seasons, which was fun. Yeah, that was like her follow-up to her original. Right. And That was the big hit. I yeah. did not do the big hit. Yeah, but this it, one but got it was, canceled. Yeah, it got canceled. <laughs> and then she canceled the next one we got. Uh, but Everything's Relative was Mitch's pilot that was uh, really, to me, a precursor to Arrested. It, it involved a sort of another version of his family. Yeah. And they were very neurotic and very nutty. And... Uh, and we started to really get into the ink spots and Duke Ellington as sources. In fact, that show had an actual ink spot song, the actual ink spots. I didn't do a version of it. We used it. There was a, a montage in every version. We only did four episodes, so we had four different ink spots montages. Uh, but then I started to learn how much he loved 
Duke and um, Louis Armstrong and all, all that music. And, and I started to write music that would be for the show, but also be inspired by that. And that was mm -hmm. a big thing. Yeah. And uh, the show got, some people thought it was like the most brilliant show ever, critics I'm talking about, and some couldn't get through the fact that it had a laugh track. And, uh, but I loved it, it was great. And after four episodes, it was over. Mm. And then I think the next thing, I don't know about the, the order of it, but then Arrested came about. Yeah, so it, it, it took a few, yeah, Arrested now, of course, it has its own history, but um, talk about uh, working on a show that gets canceled because you put it's so much work to get a show off the ground and then just have it you know cut short whether you know out of your control ratings whatever and then it's like you get the call it's like oh we're done is um, how do you take that as a creative or as, i mean does it hurt do you like oh well or do you just it's keep... terrible i'm always thinking about everybody else who's losing their jobs you know like because when you go in you see all these people working there yeah. and and you know one day they're buying all the primary actors of a show, new cars, and the next day, <laughs> not the same show, but you know, yeah. it, it's, you, you're either on top or you're not, and, yeah, and yeah. they'll just cancel a show and with no notice, and, and it's just heartbreaking, it's yeah. bad, and, and for composers, there's, you know, that's it, you just pack it up, it's done, you know, no one's gonna pay you past that, yeah. no one's gonna give you one more episode to do, you're just looking for your next job, and there, there are seasons where I've taken on three pilots or whatever, and, um, they were all done by October, and then, you know, like, you had all this work, and then you don't. So, yeah, yeah. I think, you know, as a composer, you really have to learn to love the times you're off. I'm not so great at it, but, you know, I get to a point where I start doing the things I like to do. I'll do photo expositions. I'll play more sports. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll practice bass more. I'll take more gigs playing live. And then you get to really like that, and then you get a gig, and then you go like, oh, <laughs> Shit, I, I, got, I, I got to get back into <laughs> And you think always, like, you know, Scott's probably seen me. We start a season, well, we, we you know, we got to get, get geared up for this. We got to start writing. We got to do all these things. We got to get a new template, you know, everything you do. But really, I mean, you can do that stuff, and it, it truly is helpful, but only to a point. Because yeah. once you start writing, and you're writing to actual picture, and there's actual producers and directors that are going to have a say in it, it's totally different. Absolutely. Um, so we were leading up to Arrested Development now. So Arrested Development. Uh, premiered in two thousand two three three like November I think three, two thousand three. Um, so when when you got that call from Mitch, what was that pitch for that show? I mean, what did he say? What what did he, what are the ideas he pitched to you? And was like, this is what I want from you musically. Well, after I saw him getting fit at the gym, we just became friends. <laughs> yeah. He started to invite me to things, and I did the same. And uh, we realized we had a lot in common, and he lived nearby, and um, so. He, he started sending me the script for Arrested. And I'm not a great script reader. It's really hard for me. Sometimes you can visualize it. Arrested, as you can imagine, it's just like, wow, is all this stuff? It, you know, it's so dense. How are you going to do this? Yeah. Um, and, then, um, and then when I finally saw an early shot of it and I see that early scene with um, George Michael and Michael, and Michael Sarah says, um, well, Jason Bateman says, what have I told you? They wake up in there in the, in the attic of the model house. Mm -hmm. And he says, what have I told you is the most important thing? And, uh, and Michael Sarah says, breakfast? And, and he says, no, family. And at that point, for me, it was like this revelation. Oh, these people, all these actors who I've seen in other things or haven't, they really are a family. Yeah. This really, you can see that they're a family here. Yeah. And that was just exciting. And the pilot, like most pilots, it's always interesting to go back at the show that's been on for many seasons and yeah. look at the pilot. It's so different. It's you know, always different. It's crazy. <laughs> it's, the when sets you go are back. different. Everything's different. The music is totally different. There were a lot of people at that point. Mm -hmm. so, so, you know, we had a lot of different ideas. We hadn't really established the sound, but there's some really cool music that we would go back to every now and then. Oh, where'd this come from? Oh, the pilot, <laughs> you know? Uh, and we did it. And um, I kind of remember at the screening of the pilot, like, there were like 20 people from different production entities and networks and whatever, and everyone had something to say about the music. And I was just really quiet. And I just figured like, at some point, Mitch and I are gonna get together. Yeah. <laughs> and we're gonna figure out what's working and what's not. Right. And that's kind of what happened. And he's always been so supportive and, and I have tremendous freedom. And he, he truly knows my music way better. He could like name almost any cue that I've written and tell me what year it was. 
And then on the stage, he can edit and change things. Like he'll say, let's use this from this scene and this from three seasons later. And they, it's musical. It comes together. And I've learned to not even question or doubt that, you know, yeah. a mixer will look like me. You really want to do this? First of all, it's not up to me. But second of all, it's going to work, you know. Now, it's amazing how passionate Mitch is about, I mean, not just the shows that you, he works on, but of course, your music too. Because I remember I was at the... Um, the Arrested Development soundtrack release party when the first right. album came out right. at, the, at the record store and just seeing his excitement for just... He was really excited. Was I was so, so glad excited. he was there. I know, and, was and everybody, so... that was a really special night. That was great. I, I and you got it. to perform, of course. Yeah. And I uh, Gabe yeah. was and there. Gabe was there. My daughter, like, yeah. uh, just all my favorite musicians. I could not, my, the only uh, thing I couldn't get was George during that night. He was <laughs> probably with Thomas Newman. <laughs> when I can't get him, he's usually with Thomas or somebody else. But, you know, he really wanted to be there. But I had two wonderful guitarists uh, taking his place. Yeah, it was and, such an uh, amazing night. And George has been such a big part of everything that I've done. You know. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, how, so Arrested Development had, to, you know, of course, was canceled. Like, mm -hmm. you know. So many times. <laughs> it felt like every day. Uh, yeah. We never had a feeling of security in the early yeah. seasons. It was, it was always weird. How does that affect your work when you don't know? Do you just keep acting like okay keep going like we're going or do you like kind of prepare no, yourself i i don't think that way and and i i don't even know if mitch does mm -hmm. and we just sort of do what we can do and yeah. you know if it happens it's gonna happen right you know i've been on a lot of shows that, that are just on the edge and they get discovered later it's it's a nice thing in a way yeah. <laughs> that they do get discovered later but those first three seasons i don't think you know i mean it, it became more of a cult thing absolutely yeah and then when we were canceled after three if I get the timing right here, it became the biggest DVD thing ever. DVDs had hit yeah. really big, and suddenly we're this giant thing, and people are gifting it to each other, and every yeah. college kid is... No, every, I remember I was in college, and everyone was watching it in their dorms and everything, so... Yeah. Was, yeah, and that's the coolest thing for a dad-slash-composer, because if your kids, you know, like, are really into what you're doing, you know, yeah. that's just a great bonus. Of you know, They could yeah. brag about it a little bit, and it, yeah. it's pretty cool. And so when you got that phone call that, hey, we're coming back, what was your reaction? I'm trying to remember. I guess I, I heard it in like maybes from Mitch at this point. And, yeah. you know, but when I heard Netflix, oh, this was the greatest thing. And, yeah. and to come back. And there's also always trepidation. Can we get back to there? We're putting the band back together. Yeah, you know, like, like we are we still going to have it? Yeah. All, all those things. So um, there was some trepidation. I, but I, I sort of operate on the trepidation side of things. You know, it's like, <laughs> You panic first, and then you figure out a way to, to do did it, it. Did it take some time to get get back into the groove of things, or was it just like picking up like where you guys left off? I always work a long time before we start shooting, because Mitch will have ideas for bands and scenes. And yeah. I think season four, there was a scene, there was a band in college that my daughter was in, Lucy was in, and, and I put that band together, and we went to... Occidental College to shoot it. That was where, where it was shot, where my daughter had actually gone. Oh, so wow. it, was, it was weird. She says, I'm back in this music room. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and uh, yeah, so I'll always do a lot of things just because I'll know they're coming and that kind of thing. Yeah. So that was, it wasn't smooth. You know, I just remember like, you know, are we really going to get going? Are we going to get going? And there's always waiting and stuff. But once I was writing an actual show, I think it came back, but it did feel different. And one of the things with season four, we started to really expand the length of the cues mm. and have more thematic stuff. So <coughs> it changed in that way, to have longer cues and not be slave to when the commercials came. That's, yeah, because you don't have to deal with commercials. And we started to have, you know, 30-minute episodes. What's this? That's an interesting thing, because now on Veep 2, I think people are programmed at 21 minutes to start going like, it's not over, yeah. you know. <laughs> just like, so I, I think it takes extra creativity to have extra long half hours, and you know, an HBO or a streaming half hour is always longer than a, than a twenty-one minute. Yeah, I'm talking about the twenty minutes of content. Twenty-one minutes in a thirty-minute. And then of thing. course there's commercials. But yeah, it, yeah. it's just a different pacing experience, and you know, if I watch shows I don't do, you know, that I still feel that this is longer than yeah. you know a, a network comedy. But now I think you know the streaming and the cable shows have become the norm you know, you're more used to that and i think we watch more of them yeah i don't i mean I, I cut i cut the cord a while ago right and it's been hulu but i paid a little extra to get right. rid of those commercials so right. you kind of get the, uh 
you know, ch chop it, chop them out. But now um, we have the confession: you're paying to get rid of the. No, I would do that too. <laughs> but but no, even if you're DVRing, you skip through the commercials. It's not as big a factor. Exactly. The only commercials that I actually stomach uh, is YouTube, is mm -hmm. because they they found a way to be like. Yeah, you can pay to get rid of it, but it's only five seconds, and then you can uh -huh. skip it. <laughs> it's like <laughs> it, it still annoys me, but I don't watch a lot. I mean, I watch YouTube to look up things, but I don't yeah. watch a lot of YouTube shows. Or are there YouTube shows? There are. There are YouTube yes, shows. Yeah. There's a lot of YouTube originals. YouTube. Uh, I like content creators on YouTube. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm a content creator on YouTube. This oh, is right. going on YouTube, so right, it's like cool. uh, it's great. You, and I watch a lot of things like that. You know, like yeah, they're not as concerts, not and, so much scripted stuff. A lot right, of kind of reality right. or vlogging and stuff. But it's no, that's been amazing yeah. and. But it's it's great. I mean, there's so much. But that's also it's great. But also, it's like there's so much now. It's like mm -hmm. it's overload, you know. <laughs> but I I think it, YouTube and, and Netflix is giving a lot of I think creativity back to creators. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you had a show on a network TV, it'd be completely different. I mean, I don't. You do. You have uh, the Good Place. Comparing Good, you know, Good Place to, um, but you work with a great creator on, on Good Place too, and Michael. Uh, Right, they all have such different yeah, stuff. So. Something I, I could talk about a little bit. I don't know if I can, but but the uh, I was gonna say one other thing about season four, Arrested Development. The opening scene is uh, my acting close up. I'm I'm the leader of the angry white mariachis, <laughs> and that was really hard. I don't know why. It should be simple, you know, but uh, uh, you know we, we had these. Um, well, I won't even talk about the lyrics, but it's funny. And, and you know, there's a scene where the, Marriott, the angry white people of, of Newport Beach are, are mad because on Cinco de Mayo, their help is off, you know, and they, they, <laughs> their kitchen help and their... Yeah. So, you know, uh, that was the whole joke of it. And, and Mitch asked me to get a, a mariachi band of angry white people. And <laughs> if you start, like, trying to cast that, it's, it has all kinds of problems, yeah, you know. Yeah. And... Um, I basically hired all my musician friends who had or used to have uh, blonde or red hair, and Mitch said I could be the most ethnic of them. No one more <laughs> ethnic than me, which is, is instruction to me. But it turns out the scene, you know, happened in seconds. But we were out on the Long Beach Pier all night, which was, and I had like George Daring and and uh, Sid Page and, and Peter Kent and super session players, and out until four in the morning, sleeping in mariachi clothes. We, they were all asleep on the dock. I can That's show you pictures so of that, funny. which is pretty funny. Um, but that was a fun night. And you also see, on like across the pier, there's Jeffrey Tambor and um, Liza Minnelli. They're working later than us. They're going up and down that staircase till four in the morning. Yeah. And I said, yeah. well, we can't complain. You know, <laughs> they're older. They're the stars, and they're they're not. You know, they're just working really hard, going up and down the staircase. That's yeah. a, we could, it was funny because we we're on one dock, and then the next dock over, we could see them doing that all night. That's so funny. <laughs> oh, I, I was I was going to ask you something. Uh, uh, for, so season four, when it came back, um, I remember. So Mitch went back and re-edited it, right? He recut. Um, Right. To kind of, did that affect, did you have to do anything with music or was, how did that ch affect anything? Well, Mitch called me up and said, I'm doing this thing. You don't have to do it every day. It's just, just I want to have some new music of yours in there. I just want to feature it. So it's pretty great. Oh, wow. I, I wrote a song and there were some great bits and just, he just wanted some things to surprise people. So it was really fun for me and it wasn't like we were spotting or, you know, doing yeah. any, and it was a massive project for him yeah, and that was for Jason crazy. Newman, who has always been my music editor, almost always, since he had the job here. He's another person that came out of the studio, and now I think he does everything on TV, <laughs> or close to. He does a lot, and he's a great music editor, and he has great people on his team. And uh, but actually, his first music editing job was Arrested Development. Wow! And the pilot was actually done by Erica Weiss, who's another great composer and a music editor. And she had been my assistant. So when Erica left to work for Danny DeVito as a music editor, I said, why don't you be the music editor? But we had to get Jason into the union. So you know, wow. it was a little tricky at first. And then yeah. now it's been fantastic. You're just paving these paths for people. <laughs> it's not what I'm trying to do. I, I like them. And, and you know, I'd like to take, I, I can't take the credit. They are no, great. they're great. And, yeah. and, they bring and so much to the table. I, I think just because we all do things here that we all learn from, it works for them too. But I just love that. It's, it's a thing about the music community that I really love. And it's, you, you create these friendships and everyone's kind of looking out for each other. And I mean, you know, Gabe is doing amazing things on, on his own. And he's he, so good. He, I mean, I interviewed him before you and he, I mean, 
definitely talked to you as you were his mentor and really gave him the ground to, to do what he's doing now. Well, so he, that's nice. He walked in here with a lot of talents and he's a great singer and a great songwriter. And yeah, I, I think he told you at first he was less interested in that and wanted and sort of left to yeah. pursue his songwriting career, which was great. And I was a big fan of his solo act and then the rescues and, yeah. and, uh, um, I think he was a big influence on both my kids, my daughter, who's a singer, and, uh, and um, yeah, so uh, I, I couldn't be happier for his success, and, and that's great. Uh, and you have another amazing uh, show, The Good Place, uh, which is from uh, creator Michael Schur, mm -hmm. who I love. I mean, you know, he created Brooklyn Nine-Nine and Parks and Rec and worked on The Office. Um, Talk, talk about, that's another unique premise. Uh -huh. And I feel like, was it, was it a challenge to find the tone of that, of that? I feel like a Michael Schur tone is kind of hard to pinpoint too because he, it's comedy, but it's, there's, you know, there's other stuff. Yeah. There's a lot of layers. It was, it was a big challenge. Well, I'll just tell you the story because I, I, as I sort of went through that process. But uh, Sarah Kovacs, who I just, you know, switched over to Craft Hangar, called me up yeah. and I said, these guys are calling, they're interested in you, you want to go over there? I said, sure. You know, I, I, I really didn't know that much about Mike Scher and I went over there and, you know, in most of those meetings there's somewhere between five and seven people there who are producers and yeah. writers and you, you know? <laughs> you <laughs> and so, and you know, and, and after a while you get a little more comfortable with that scenario and all they wanted to talk about was Deadwood and I said, I don't know, my agent said, this is a comedy? And they said, yeah, it is. We just want to hear stories about uh, David Milch. And uh, so, I have his name right. Yeah, and uh, so I told them one story I had, because I really wasn't at Deadwood very long. I wrote the theme and, was, right. and went back to Arrested after a few episodes. But um, the, uh, and that was sort of the meeting. And they said, you should know one thing. We really don't use music in our shows. We don't know what to do with it. We're not big fans of it, you know. We might say, "Yeah, that's fine," and move on. <laughs> so, yeah. it's, so it's a little bit, you know, like, "Wow, what do I do with this?" You know, and it was just a meeting. And and but I think by the time I had gotten back, I had gotten a call that they wanted me to do it. So I was thrilled because I just know the creativity level. And the show—it was a pilot happening during pilot season, but it had been picked up. We knew we had the season. Okay. But I didn't know I had it, and I felt like, even though I'm not auditioning for the pilot, I'm auditioning. Because if I don't write the music that meets the right tone, yeah, and it had a lot of music in it, and there's an opening scene, not the exact opening, but like the second or third cue in, that's two minutes long. It's the initiation scene where Michael is introducing everybody to the good place, and he's got a screen behind him, and there's got to be music, and I just kept on sending him over. I don't usually do that. I go like, this is the cue, and I hope you like it. But I was sending over like I think I sent ten different things. Wow, and um. He was very, I, I learned how smart he is and how much he knows about music. So he said, like, I like this, but, you know, like, here could be, you know, I think for him it was new dealing with that kind of music and score in a show, too. So we were sort of working yeah. it out. Yeah. And uh, one of those really hit, but it sort of became a combination of a number of those different approaches that I put together until finally they were really happy with it. And then, uh, you know, wrote all the music for the first episode, and... I believe, I don't know if it was Mike Scher or um, Drew Guess, one of the producers said, oh, we said we weren't going <laughs> to like the music, but we really love it. <laughs> and now Mike, you know, he's always asking for Eleanor's theme and he has themes that he really loves. So that's very gratifying. And I was sort of looking for a show like that at the time. Yeah. That was, you know, the things we've talked about. Smart, funny, has... Yeah empathetic moments that are great and has some truth to it but also I had been doing shows I'd been doing Lady Dynamite right then uh, another show like Arrested Development the shows are very different but I'm, I'm saying like in the in the fact that I could write you know heavy metal one second an orchestra <laughs> piece the next and 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 then do fife and drum music you know after the Korean bit or something you know <laughs> I wanted a show that had a palette that would be more thematic yeah and it just happened to really work that way in fact it's hard to leave that palette in the good place because everyone notices, oh, this doesn't feel like the good place, and that's a thing that we'll do. Right, right. Uh, so, and it's definitely grown over the three seasons, but uh, it's a fantastic show to do uh, with wonderful people, and uh, everybody inspires each other, and uh, the editors are brilliant at temping. Um, 
one thing that comes up often in the show is they, you know, since the first season they temp exclusively with my score. That's amazing. Is they get stuck, you know, so now the temp I have to beat is me. Yourself. <laughs> which I will gladly do. You know, he'll say, you know, like, I know you're going to want to write another piece here, but like, we really like this. I said, yeah, I don't think that's quite the right, you know, can I try? And yeah. sometimes I win, sometimes I don't. Mm -hmm. But uh, we always give it a try. Um, it's a fantastic universe. It keeps on surprising me, and we didn't know until very close to the time that they aired or we started to spot those, what those big changes in the show were going to be. Yeah, it's, I'm so glad that it's kind of, it, it kind of gains some momentum and, uh -huh. and people are really enjoying it. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's a great show, so congrats. I mean, and your music is a whole part of it, so. <laughs> well, I feel really fortunate. It worked out really well. And uh, not having that pressure of, a pilot and pilot season, I think, allowed yeah. us to develop it a little bit. There's a little bit more time. They were working on other things, and it just sort of came together. Absolutely. So uh, you're doing another amazing show that's uh, back on the air, uh, Veep, mm -hmm. um, and it's at the final season, and uh, this is completely different. You have you didn't start with this show. You're kind of coming in on the on the last stop as the train is pulling into the stations. But that must be weird, but also exciting to kind of join a crew that's kind of wrapping things i don't know what, what's the, what, <laughs> what's the situation like tv's well, always a weird place it was, it, was a, it, was, it was a total surprise to me yeah. uh, and a good place producer asked me if i would do it and uh i i you know i just have such love for the show yeah and it's so, so smart and uh i still what i had a couple of months that i knew there and i just went back and studied old episodes studied is not even the thing but just to see how it works and, yeah yeah and, and know the story better and this season, you know, I, they've just gone further with the story. You know, I mean, they're sort of reprehensible people, but how can we make them more reprehensible? <laughs> and in a way, you know, the real politics that are happening every day in our country have gotten so extreme that you have to, yeah. you know, either give up or go more extreme when you're telling a fictional tale. And it, it's just really funny. And uh, it, it's it's been great fun for me. And... Uh, it's another show. It has a very unique palette. It's you know, it, it, it's another chamber orchestra. Uh, the Good Place has other things added to it, but I yeah. found that once I leave the world of strings, woodwinds, and brass and some percussion, it doesn't feel right to them or to me. Right. And you know, that's the sound that they see for the show. Always been, and I'm just trying to continue in that tradition. That's amazing. Well. Anyway, it's thrilling, and you know, <laughs> it, it is. No, you, you really have your your film your filmography or TV TVography is that a word? But it's just like of oh, these really eclectic like shows with their own distinct personalities, and I think that's so. well doing all three this year. I couldn't imagine to have three you know yeah. just landmark comedies that I would just love to watch as a fan, and to be doing them is is really exciting, and and it's great to have different shows because yeah. then you get to you know it challenges it's you, like, and you some by doing reward. things that each one sort of challenge you know. To me, ups the quality of the other. I think. Yeah, you know, absolutely. I've come back from working on this. Um, so to kind of, uh, as we kind of wind things down, I have some kind of like big picture questions. I always like to ask, uh, and I know it's going to be different on on every project, but where does the first note come from for you? What's the that the thing that you do to kind of get that first idea out? Do you just like to talk with your director or, or showrunner? Do you just like to sit and noodle at the, at, you know, with some notes and stuff? I mean, where do you kind of go to get that first inspiration? I think basically I'm a noodler, but, but, but everywhere, you know, I mean, I try to get as much information as I can. I'll research other musics uh, that, you know, may not seem similar at all, but I says, well, this had this in it, and I'll go listen to some band or some orchestra or just different things that might inspire me in that period. And I try to get and to notate like anything... <clears throat> You know, I mean, I don't expect the producer to say, hey, it should be A minor 7 here. Mm -hmm. But that's happened, too. <laughs> that's another story. It's always but happened. That, that threw me off bad. I was a, right here in this room, a guy was listening to the music, and he said, hey, you had me until you played that A minor 7 chord. And then I just couldn't talk <laughs> the rest of the day. But, but uh, no, but, you know, they're talking about emotions, whether they're saying yeah. it should be more green or, boy, you know, it is sad here. Can we lift the level so that, it, you know, it's not so sad? Or, uh, you know, that's like... It's another slight side story, but I think something that I, that I got from Northern Exposure was like, well, we have this value here. Mm. What other value can we add here? So they never like to 
um, see sad, play sad, you know, right. uh, see happy, play happy music. You know, we try to do something hmm. not obvious. And you can't always do that. A lot of people want, you know, that more direct approach. Absolutely, yeah. So, and then, you know, I get in here, um, sometimes an instrument will inspire me. So if I'm thinking about what, what the colors of it should be, um, there is a Tahitian ukulele up there on the wall. We can show it later, but uh, I happened to be in Bora Bora right before Arrested started, like right before it started, and I brought this thing back, and I, you know, I heard it um, in a restaurant, wow. and I uh, asked my wife, can we, you know, just sidetrack here and we went and talked to the guy who was playing it you know who was a big tahitian warrior type and he yeah. spoke a little bit of french and a little bit of english and and he found me one so it's, it's a longer story but i came back with it and wow. it's, it's pretty unique and now you know it's been used on other things i've seen it around and uh but it, it was a great start and it's mine but we didn't have it for the pilot so uh because the pilot was done a few months before yeah and it was yeah. in between and uh, we started fooling around, um, <clears throat> and Mitch heard that in the early music of when we came back to do the first show again, you know, you'll do the pilot the second time. And yeah. he said, what does that sound? And, and then from there, we use it a lot. Yeah. And already sort of had the idea of how can we sort of make the sort of kind of Django-based jazz different. <coughs> well, if you play it on a Tahitian ukulele, <laughs> And if you can find the guitarist at the level of George Deering who can play those kind of melodies on an eight-string fishing line equipped, that's what it is. It's, it's every string is fishing line, so each one is a double string of the same gauge fishing line. So wow. I've had to repair a string, and you have to go to a fishing store, which is both convenient and not convenient. Yeah. Um, and you have to buy 10,000 feet. 10,000 You can't get let. That's, that's, oh, that's right. right. You actually have a... <laughs> Needing uh, a lot of water here. Um, so, yeah, and then I, I think once the show's, it's mostly sitting down at the piano, and you know, sometimes you have that idea running or in the shower or driving. Yeah. But because for me, I'm here most hours, you know, I come in and I just start to get an idea. And I'm very much beholden to that first idea. Uh, I don't usually go back and say, it happens, but usually, I, I try to make that, whatever I was thinking, that those first notes that sort of accidentally came out by magic out of my hands on the piano, I try to make that into Just what the tune is. stick with that instinct, that first yeah. instinct. And sometimes I'll realize, oh, you're gone in the wrong direction. But, <laughs> right. But to me, it's more about like, this doesn't sound good. How can we make it sound good? Yeah. Just keep on shaping it until it becomes right. And usually that first idea comes out very fast. And then the orchestrating and the editing and all that stuff is harder and longer for me yeah to do absolutely you know? so you've worked on so many amazing tv shows uh and i asked gabe the same question and mm -hmm. uh and i'm interested in your take what, what 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 in your mind what is the how do you make the perfect tv theme we talked about it earlier you didn't know you were trying to get shoot for a certain sound earlier in your career but now at this point in your career you've done so many shows what what is a great tv theme well, what does it need to do? I don't mean to avoid your question, but <laughs> I don't feel any differently than I did on that first Northern Exposure theme. Really? I don't know where it comes from, and um, I just until it sounds right, I'll do it. You know, and the themes have come pretty quickly. I will say, Arrested was hard for me in that I wrote it, and Mitch loved it, and I wasn't sure. Hmm. And he kept saying, well, add more stuff to it. Like, let's have a guy whistling. And I, was like, I got my friend Jimmy McVeigh whistling on it, which was a great thing for both of us. <laughs> and, and then, like, I said, well, you know, I'm going to take out this line and this line, and what do you think? We'll try this combination. He, he wanted it all, and it's just like the show. And I yeah. didn't realize that how much like the show is. Now I hear it. It just sounds like the Arrested theme, and, <laughs> you know, a, a, a good mix was part of that, you know, getting all those things to sit in there. Right. Uh, but usually... Um, the theme, uh, well, I can tell you about the Deadwood theme. Um, Steve Turner, who I'd worked with on Northern Exposure, called me up and said, hey, we have this show. We don't really have a theme yet. You know, do you want to give a shot at it? And, and he said, when do you need it? And I said, when do you need it? And he said, tomorrow. And I said, well, I'm standing on the Eiffel Tower. He said, well, sorry, it's not going to work. And I said, well, it's the Eiffel Tower in Vegas, and I'd do anything to get out of this town. <laughs> so can I come back and have one more day? He said, yeah. So I came back the next day, and they sent me over some wacky 
like hillbilly. I can't even remember. It was sort of like blues and hillbilly thing uh, that they had liked. And uh, it was kind of inspiring. I don't know why. Uh -huh. and, and I just sat down and started to write it. And, I, and that time I was in there playing the Weisenborn and just doing anything to get sort of a vibey thing going. And I wrote the great body of it that day. And... Um, Somehow got George Nearing to come over on a Sunday evening, and later that same night, I think, Steve Turner came over. And uh, he said, this is great. Let me play it to the director and to the showrunner. And, um, and then Davis Guggenheim, who was the director, came over and gave me a note. And I thought it was the greatest note, because it didn't come from me, and it really worked. He said, yeah, it needs something in the middle that's totally different. Mm -hmm. So now there's this part where it all calms down before it builds again, and it's harmonium, and, uh, and then we had Chris Bleth play the Duduk on there, which we experimented with a couple like Native American flutes and other things, and the Duduk just, even though absolutely wrong, you know, part of the world it comes yeah. from, uh, the Armenian Duduk uh, just has a mystery to it that was great. I love the instrument, so, uh, yeah. yeah. And uh, so, and then to me that came together, and that was uh, Davis's note, which I really appreciate. Got to tell him last year. I saw him someplace. But that's awesome. Do you do you have any personal favorite TV themes that you did not write, or do you some of your like your favorites that kind of stick out to you? I'm so bad at that. <laughs> uh, Gabe Gabe said that his he thinks the best one was The Simpsons because it. Oh, that's an awesome one. That's obviously. like it, he says that the, and, the Simpsons and, that it catches you and then it just takes you into that theme and then right yeah right no it's beautiful. Uh, Six Feet Under I always liked a great that's deal. A great one and. Uh, Lost an Emmy to another. I, I I try to lose to a Newman every time. Yeah, uh, but that's a, that's it, a whole different award. You yeah. get the Lost to a Newman award. Lost to a Newman award. <laughs> so that's happened twice, but uh, and two different Newmans. But uh, uh, I'm glad to be nominated anytime. And uh, God, uh, I'm not thinking of other ones right now. But okay, uh, no worries. Uh, uh, no, it's tough because yeah. You have to like you're thinking back. You're trying to remember the tunes. Uh, yeah. You know, if I if I got put on the spot, it'd probably be. I'll, I'll think of ten later and tell you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think Law and Order is a great one. I think anything Mike Post, he's he's got. Oh, that. mics are legendary. Oh my God. And like you're those, still on the air. You're still on the air. <laughs> <laughs> what I mean, jeez. Uh, <laughs> like those shows are are defined by the themes. I uh -huh. think that's so crazy. It's like you cannot think of that uh -huh. show without those themes. But. Um, but David, thank you so much uh, for your time this evening. Well, thank you. It was really enjoyable and fun. It's been so much fun chatting with you, and uh, yeah, I hope we can do it again. Well, let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> let's do it right now. <laughs> yeah, start another one. Yeah. <laughs>